It's ironic that many environmental issues remain isolated or siloed from each other. Policy and politics, science and data. But that's changing as the connections between water, food and energy in a changing climate become more closely linked. But what about oceans? Literally, where the river meets the sea. I'm J. Carl Ganter, and this is Speaking of Water from Circle of Blue. At the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado, I sat down with Janice Searles-Jones, CEO of the Ocean Conservancy. I wanted to learn more about how oceans have seized the world stage and the obvious and not-so-obvious connections to fresh water as we see more and more how our world's ecosystems are connected. We're at this really interesting moment in history. I want you to try to describe that for me. What are you feeling today as there are all sorts of converging forces, both probably environmentally, system-wide, planetarily, politically? Um, can you describe that moment for me? Sure. I think we are at a pretty fundamental tipping point when it comes to planetary systems. But at the same time, I'm hugely optimistic because I also feel like we are at a tipping point when it comes to citizen awareness of what challenges we're all facing. And when we look toward our future, you're seeing more and more engagement across sectors, across individuals, and so many more people getting invested in thinking about what the solutions are. And so while I think our current trajectory projections are certainly dire, and there are a lot of converging threats that we all need to think about, at the same time, I'm starting to see that balanced out by um, appetite for engagement and enthusiasm for actually grappling with this problem. So I think we're right in the right spot, and we're tipping over into the right direction here where we'll actually be able to have a sustainable future for our planet and for all of us. Okay, so let's describe this teeter-totter. On one side, we have these planetary challenges. Lay them out for me from the ocean perspective. Well, one of the things we've been doing a lot of work on lately uh, is sort of the the twin issues that are starting to gain public attention. On the one hand, you have plastics, um, which has really galvanized a lot of people when it comes to ocean conservation. On the other hand, you have climate. And a lot of people don't necessarily think of ocean and climate in the same breath, but literally they are part of the same breath. And so one of the things that we're trying to do at Ocean Conservancy is making sure that as we think about climate change impacts, as we think about mitigation targets, as we think about adaptation, we have the ocean squarely in the center of that thought because the ocean is um, inextricably linked with climate change and ocean solutions and climate change solutions need to be one and the same. Okay, so now on the other side, Bill McKibben the other night said we're, we're 25 years too late. We should have started, and he's talking about climate change. Mm -hmm. A lot of this should have been started 25 years ago. We should have seen it. Why do we miss it? I think climate change is one of those very difficult things for people to grapple with in the short term. It really challenges a lot of short-term, long-term thinking, and as a species, we're not that great uh, at long-term thinking. And uh, I also think there was a very effective effort to try to, particularly in the United States, muddy the science that was in there and make it more of a scientific dispute than it actually is. Uh, and so I think uh, Bill's exactly right that we are we are late to do what we need to do. But I do think it's clear what we need to do. We're capable of doing it. The biggest challenge here is political will across the board. And that's where I do have this optimism that more and more people are starting to get invested, seeing what the future holds. You have the whole rise of the youth movement, which is absolutely phenomenal um, to watch their investment in their future. Um, and then I think uh, older generations recognizing um, what we owe to the next generation. I think that's starting to change in a way uh, that 
gives me a lot of hope for where we're headed in the next 25 years. What's causing that tipping point? I think there are a few different things. I do think uh, media has a huge role to play, and there is more and more reporting on climate, which I think is hugely important. Um, there should be more reporting on ocean and climate, and I hope to see more of that in the coming years. There is no question that plastics, for example, has massive uh, issue salience among the public, and I think a large part of that is that we all touch plastic, we can all relate to plastic, we can all relate to trash, and then those viral images, the sea turtle with the straw up her nose, uh, the seahorse wrapped around a Q-tip rather than a seaweed or a seagrass. I think those are incredibly powerful ways because everybody agrees that plastic does not belong in nature. And when you have those images that can really bring that home together with that sense that you have some responsibility, both for advocating for corporate responsibility, but also in your own life and with your own policies in your city, your state, your nation, I think that really brings together both the heart and the mind um, and brings some passion to the issue, which is great to see. Let's go back and talk about some of those, some of those grand challenges. Um, and I want to come back to Bill McKibben because you know, talking about locking in uh, certain trends and unlocking certain trends. Uh, maybe you can describe some of those that are course that we can course correct, and also some of the things we really need to be aware of and how we're talking about climate and how we're talking about some of these grand challenges. So one example I would use that is particular to the ocean is the concept of ocean acidification. Uh, the ocean has absorbed about 90% of the heat that we have emitted as a result of burning fossil fuels, and it's also absorbed about 30% of the carbon dioxide that we have emitted. And when that happens, a chemical reaction happens in seawater, and it becomes more acidic, and it becomes more difficult for animals that build shells to actually build those shells. And so one of the things that's really important to think about when we think about mitigation, we have to mitigate um, across the array of greenhouse gases, but from the ocean perspective, carbon dioxide is particularly important because if you don't actually reduce carbon dioxide emissions, you will not be able to solve the ocean acidification problem. And right now, under a business-as-usual scenario, scientists estimate that once we get to century's end, if we don't actually deal with mitigation, uh, seawater will be so acidic that it'll actually dissolve corals. And we're already starting to see um, impacts with um, oysters, for example, in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, have to pump in different kinds of water so that the baby oysters can actually survive. Um, and so we're having impacts to real communities, real industries, real people right now. And we need to be thinking about those as we're setting our mitigation targets and actually figuring out which greenhouse gases we're going to tackle in which order so that we don't lock in a much longer tail in the ocean. Uh, because a lot of those um, calcareous animals are actually the base of the food chain. And so if you inhibit their ability to form their shells and inhibit their ability to um, grow and um, grow productively, you actually have food chain impacts up the food chain as well. So it's a really important thing for all of us because there are a lot of people um, on the planet who relied on seafood as their primary source of protein. So this has food security impacts across the globe as well. Wow, some uh, intense pieces. Um, so I'm a water guy. I have a T-shirt that says the Great Lakes unsalted. Um, freshwater people don't necessarily hang out with the ocean people, and the ocean people don't necessarily hang out with the freshwater people. Um, what's up with that? 
That is a great question. And I do think uh, all water is connected. The ocean holds 97% of the planet's water, and it is all connected. In a lot of ways, the ocean ends up being the pipe, for, uh, the end of the pipe for all of those freshwater systems. And I do think two places where we're, we interact a great deal um, with freshwater advocates are um, around plastic and around pollution. Uh, so plastic, we run an international coastal cleanup globally, and we clean uh, waterways and beaches. And so you get that connection there. Uh, last year, we had more than a million volunteers around the planet, and you removed somewhere on the order of 200, uh, 20 million um, pounds of trash. So it's a really significant um, event. We collect all the data, and then we share all that data out. And uh, two years ago was the first year that all of the top 10 items in the data collected were plastic. So I think literal trash is a great place where we interact uh, a great deal with freshwater advocates. The other place is around uh, pollution and nutrient pollution in particular. For example, the Mississippi River, which drains the Midwest um, and dumps out into the Gulf of Mexico, um, is the source of a lot of the nutrient pollution in the Gulf of Mexico, which leads to a massive dead zone uh, in ocean waters where animals basically can no longer live. Uh, it's predictable. It happens every year. This year it's predicted to be much larger than usual because of that super heavy rainfall in the Midwest that's flushed out a lot of that nitrogen and phosphorus and other fertilizers. So there are a lot of upstream uh, impacts that are felt in the ocean, and that's another real strong connection between advocates for clean water um, and riverine systems have the same issues uh, as we do when they get down into the Gulf of Mexico. Great. So you're talking about systems um, and in the environment world. Even in the freshwater world, uh, a lot of the freshwater NGOs and even research, like uh, fish swimming around in little glass jars, and they they look at each other and then they continue swimming in their, around in their little glass jar. How has the systems approach, or is there a systems approach that's emerging and that's much more um, connective today? I think we are starting to see that more and more. I mean, it's it's easy. It's not that hard to collaborate, but it's also easy not to, um, in part because everybody is so invested in what they're actually doing and in grappling with the system in which they're operating. And the challenge, uh, I'm a litigator by trade, so I often look at this from a governance standpoint. Um, natural systems don't know jurisdictional boundaries. Uh, they don't appreciate our governance systems, which are completely different for fresh water than they are for the ocean. Uh, and so one of the things we need to do is sort of take a natural view of all the work that we're doing and figure out how to harmonize those governance systems that we're working with, those advocacy systems that we're working with, and sort of o overcome the structures that we put in place that are real barriers to some of that systems thinking that really needs to happen for us to solve these problems. I mean, to solve the Gulf of Mexico problem, you need to work on the farm bill. Um, and so having, you know, ocean people think about working on a farm bill, um, having river people thinking about working on emissions from an ocean acidification perspective, I think those are really important things that we need to sort of catalyze um, and increase that kind of collaboration um, and cooperation to really make these systems be the most important thing we're thinking about rather than the jurisdictions and the governance systems. Is that starting to change? I mean, we're looking specifically at the U.S., but look at other parts of the world where you have, of course, governance and corruption. Always look at what are the impediments? I mean, what are the greatest impediments and how do we break them down quickly? 
So one of the interesting things for me, again, um, being kind of a governance nerd around water and oceans is just the very concept of public commons, right? So we are dealing with uh, places that are not privatized, um, that are supposed to be held for the public good. And that creates great opportunity on the one hand, but also great challenges on the other because you don't have someone who's in charge of ocean conservation, for example. You don't have someone who's in charge of um, freshwater supply that are uh, connected um, underground or through atmospheric, um, you have all of these different jurisdictions. So I do think that that is one of the um, one of the big questions for the age of this planet that we are in when we are feeling the human impacts at a scope and a scale where we are truly affecting systems. I mean, it's extraordinary that human beings have actually heated the ocean. I mean, it is a massive body of water and that we have had such an impact that you have seawater warmer. It's, it's, it is extraordinary. And that is the age that we're in. So we really need to think about those kinds of solutions, which require international cooperation, even in the face of having um, corruption and a lot of divergence when it comes to geopolitical interests. At the end of the day, you know, everybody always says there is no planet B. Um, and so really driving toward figuring out how to make those systems work in concert with the natural systems is really the daunting challenge of our age. But I don't see any alternative. I mean, we're going to have to do it because we all want to continue to survive on this planet. Okay. So surviving on the planet um, five years from now, uh, what do you think will be the big stories if you're stepping back um, in orbit saying, okay, here are the big stories on the planet. Let's let, let's do both sides of teeter-totter. What, what's the biggest uh, positive news? What's the biggest negative news that in a sense, we, you know, where are we going to be in five years? So it is definitely my hope that in five years, uh, one of the biggest stories is around renewables. I mean, that is emissions reduction is key to a lot of the challenges facing the ocean. Uh, and while there's a lot of interesting adaptation we can do and amelioration of localized impacts, we still have to deal with emissions reduction. So I think that seeing um, renewables and possibly even ocean renewables really vault into the orders of magnitude above where they are now is absolutely critical to the future that we all need. Um, so I would expect that five years from now we would have been through a transformative um, period of time in the United States and globally where those renewables are really taking off. Um, on the people side of things, uh, I do think, uh, as I mentioned before, the rise of youth movements and seeing more and more nations and nation states um, listening to coastal communities and listening to people who are actually experiencing sea level rise, for example, uh, and having to deal with that direct impact on real human beings, real communities right now, I think that makes response to climate change much less abstract and much more direct um, and governments are better at dealing with what's right in front of their nose. Um, and so I think that you will continue to see um, that movement of population demanding more from their governments around climate change. And I think that that's going to be a real positive as well. So plastics, it is my hope that we are our, our bold goal at Ocean Conservancy together with partners to actually end the flow of plastics into the ocean by 2030. And that is a very tall order when you think of how much plastics is flowing into the ocean every year, about 8 million metric tons. Uh, and so I would expect to see um, a little bit of a she change. I think we've been working on plastics in particular and really investing in some of the science um, for the past seven to eight years. And you've already seen um, a massive change in public awareness and in the conversation. And so I think that in the next five years, you're going to see huge shifts in consumption patterns. You're seeing 
corporations across the board um, making commitments to reduce their single-use plastics, move to a fully recyclable system, and ultimately get to a circular economy where you don't have excess plastic and you reuse every plastic that's actually out there. And so I think that um, that trend is increasing rapidly. So I think in five years, you're actually going to see some real measurable success on that front. You've been listening to a conversation with Janice Searles-Jones, CEO of the Ocean Conservancy, recorded at the Aspen Ideas Festival. For the latest water news roundup, tune in on Mondays to What's Up With Water, our weekly podcast of what you need to know. And to learn more, visit us at circleofblue.org and tweet us at Circle of Blue. We rely on support from people like you. And thanks for listening. I'm J. Carl Ganter, speaking of water. <laughs>